Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan. And work worry-free wherever you please. Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know, saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package, and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. Let's get started. This podcast is brought to you by my store. I will publish all my audiobooks in podcast format here, but if you really want to support me in making these or just want to listen to them when disconnected from the internet, then you can buy my audiobooks for five bucks at theessentialreads.myshopify.com. The link will be in the description. Thank you. Dracula by Bram Stoker Chapter 7 Cutting from the Daily Graph, 8th August Pasted in Mina Murray's journal From a correspondent, Whitby One of the greatest and suddenest storms on record has just been experienced here, with results both strange and unique. The weather has been somewhat sultry, but not to any degree uncommon in the month of August. Saturday evening was as fine as ever known, and the great body of holidaymakers set out yesterday for visits to Mulgrave Woods, Robin Hood's Bay, Rigmill, Runswick, Saiths, and various trips in the neighbourhood of Whitby. The steamers, Emma and Scarborough, made excursions along the coast, and there was an unusual amount of tripping both to and from Whitby. The day was unusually fine till the afternoon, when some of the gossips who frequent Eastcliff Churchyard, and from that commanding eminence watched the wide sweep of sea visible to the north and east, called attention to a sudden show of mare's tails high in the sky to the northwest. The wind was then blowing from the southwest in the mild degree in which barometrical language is ranked number two light breeze. The coast guard on duty made report and one old fisherman who, for more than half a century, has kept watch on the weather signs from the east cliff 
foretold in an emphatic manner the coming of a sudden storm. The approach of sunset was so very beautiful, so grand in its masses of splendid coloured clouds, that there was quite an assemblage on the walk along the cliff in the old churchyard to enjoy the beauty. Before the sun dipped below the black mass of Kesselness, standing boldly athward the western sky, its downward way was marked by a myriad of clouds of every sunset colour. Flame, purple, pink, green, violet, and all the tints of gold, with here and there masses not large, but seemingly absolute blackness, in all sorts of shapes, as well outlined as colossal silhouettes. The experience was not lost on the painters, and doubtless some of the sketches of the prelude to the great storm will grace the R.A. and R.I. walls in next May. One or more captain made up his mind then and there that his cobble, or his mule, as they termed the different classes of boats, would remain in the harbour till the storm had passed. The wind fell away entirely during the evening, and at midnight there was a dead calm, a sultry heat, and that prevailing intensity which, on the approach of thunder, affects persons of a sensitive nature. There were but few lights in sight at sea, for even the coasting steamers, which usually hug the shore so closely, kept well to seaward, and but few fishing boats were in sight. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner with all sails set, which was seemingly going westward. The foolhardiness, or ignorance of her officers, was a prolific theme for comment whilst she remained in sight, and efforts were made to signal her to reduce sail in face of her danger. Before night shut down, she was seen with sails idly flapping as she gently rolled on the undulating swell of the sea. As idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Shortly before ten o'clock, the stillness in the air grew quite oppressive, and the silence was so marked that the bleating of a sheep inland, or the barking of a dog in the town, was distinctly heard, and the band on the pier, with its lively French air, was like a discord in the great harmony of nature's silence. A little after midnight came a strange sound from over the sea, and high overhead the air began to carry a strange, faint, hollow booming. Then, Without warning, the tempest broke. With a rapidity, which at the time seemed incredible, and even afterwards is impossible to realise, the whole aspect of nature at once became convulsed. The waves rose in growing fury, each overtopping its fellow, till in a very few minutes the lately glassy sea was like a roaring and devouring monster. While crested, waves beat madly on the level sands and rushed up the shelving cliffs. Others broke over piers, and with their spume swept the lanthorns of the lighthouses, which rise from the end of either pier of Whitbury Harbour. The wind roared like thunder, and blew with such a force that it was with difficulty that even strong men kept their feet, or clung with grim clasp to the iron stanchions. It was found necessary to clear the entire pier from the masses of onlookers, or else the fatalities of the night would have been increased manyfold. To add to the difficulties and danger of the time, masses of sea fog came drifting inland, wet, white clouds which swept by in ghostly fashion, so dank and damp and cold that it needed but little effort of imagination to think that the spirits of those lost at sea were touching their living brethren with their clammy hands of death, and many a one shuddered as the wreaths of the sea mist swept by. At times the mist cleared, 
and the sea, for some distance, could be seen in the glare of lightning, which now came thick and fast, followed by such sudden peals of thunder that the whole sky overhead seemed trembling under the shock of the footsteps of the storm. Some of the scenes thus revealed were of immeasurable grandeur and of absorbing interest. The sea, running mountains high, threw skyward with each wave mighty masses of white foam, which the tempest seemed to snatch at and whirl away into space. Here and there, a fishing boat with a rag of sail running madly for shelter before the blast. Now and again, the white wings of a storm-tossed seabird on the summit of the east cliff. The new searchlight was ready for experiment, but had not yet been tried. The officers in charge of it got into working order, and in the pauses of the inrushing mists swept with it the surface of the sea. Once or twice its services were most effective, as when a fishing boat, with gunwale underwater, rushed into the harbour, able, by the guidance of the sheltering light, to avoid the danger of dashing against the pier. As each boat achieved the safety of the port, there was a shout of joy from the masses of people on shore, a shout which for a moment seemed to cleave the gale, and was then swept away in its rush. Before long, the searchlight discovered, some distance away, a schooner, with all sails set, apparently the same vessel which had been noticed earlier in the evening. The wind had by this time backed to the east, and there was a shudder among the watchers on the cliff as they realised the terrible danger in which she now was. Between her and the port lay a great flat reef on which so many good ships have, from time to time, suffered. And, with the wind blowing from its present quarter, it would be quite impossible that she should fetch the entrance of the harbour. It was now nearly the hour of high tide, but the waves were so great that in their troughs the shallow of the shore were almost visible, and the schooner, with all sails set, was rushing with such speed that, in the words of one old salt, she must fetch up somewhere, for it was only in hell. Then came another rush of sea fog, greater than any hitherto mass of dank mist, which seemed to close on all things like a grey pall, and left available to men only the organ of hearing, for the roar of the tempest and the clash of thunder and the booming of the mighty billows came through the damp oblivion even louder than before. The rays of the searchlight were kept fixed on the harbour mouth across the east pier where the shock was expected, and men waited, breathless. The wind suddenly shifted to the northeast, and the remnants of the sea fog melted in the blast. And then, memorabile dictu. Between the piers, leaping from wave to wave as it rushed at headlong speed, swept the strange schooner before the blast, with all sails set, and gained the safety of the harbour. The searchlight followed her, and a shudder ran through all who saw her, for, lashed to the helm, was a corpse with drooping head which swung horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. No other form could be seen on deck at all. A great awe came on all as they realised that the ship, as if by miracle, had found the harbour unsteered save by the hand of a dead man. However, all took place more quickly than it takes to write these words. The schooner paused not, but, rushing across the harbour, pitched herself, on the accumulation of sand and gravel, washed by many tides and many storms, into the southeast corner of the pier, jutting under the east cliff, known locally as Tate Hill Pier. 
There was, of course, a considerable concussion as the vessel drove up on the sand heap. Every spar, rope, and stray was strained, and some of the top hammer came crashing down. But, strangest of all, the very instant the shore was touched, an immense dog sprang up on deck from below, as if shot up by the concussion, and, running forward, jumped from the bow onto the sand, making straight for the steep cliff where the churchyard hangs over the laneway to the east pier so steeply that some of the flat tombstones, thrustings, or through-stones, as they call them in Whitby vernacular, actually project over where the sustaining cliff has fallen away. It disappeared in the darkness, which seemed intensified just beyond the focus of the searchlight. It so happened that there was no one at the moment on Tate's Hill Pier, as all those whose houses are in close proximity were either in bed or were out on the heights above. Thus, the Coast Guard on duty on the eastern side of the harbour, who at once ran down the little pier, was the first to climb on board. The men working the searchlight, after scouring the entrance of the harbour without seeing anything, then turned the light on the derelict and kept it there. The Coast Guard ran aft, and when he came beside the wheel, bent over to examine it, and recoiled at once, as though under some sudden emotion. This seemed to pique the general curiosity, and quite a number of people began to run. It is a good way round from the West Cliff by the drawbridge to Tate Hill Pier, but your correspondent is a fairly good runner, and came well ahead of the crowd. When I arrived, however, I found already assembled on the pier a crowd, whom the Coast Guard and police refused to allow to come on board. By the courtesy of the chief boatman, I was, as your correspondent, permitted to climb on deck, and was one of the small group who saw the dead seamen whilst actually lashed to the wheel. It was no wonder that the Coast Guard was surprised, or even awed, for not often can such a sight have been seen. The man was simply fastened by his hands, tied, one over the other, to a spoke of the wheel. Between the inner hand and the wood was a crucifix, a set of beads on which it was fastened being around both wrists and wheel, and all kept fast by the binding cord. The poor fellow may have been seated at one time, but the flapping and buffeting of the sails had worked through the rudder of the wheel and dragged him to and fro, so that the cords with which he was tied had cut the flesh to the bone. Accurate note was made of the state of things, and a doctor, Surgeon J. M. Caffin, of 33 East Elliot Place, who came immediately after me, declared, after making the examination, that the man must have been dead for quite two days. In his pocket was a bottle, carefully corked, empty, save for a little roll of paper, which proved to be the addendum to the log. The Coast Guard said the man must have tied up his own hands, fastening the knots with his teeth. The fact that a Coast Guard was the first on board may save some complications later on in the Admiralty Court, for the Coast Guard cannot claim the salvage, which is the right of the first civilian entering on a derelict. Already, however, the legal tongues are wagging, and one young law student is loudly asserting that the rights of the owner are already completely sacrificed, his property being held in the contravention of the statues of Mortmain, since the tiller, as emblemship, if not proof, of delegated possession, is held in a dead hand. It is needless to say that the dead steersman has been reverently removed from the place where he held his honourable watch and ward till death. A steadfastness as noble as that of the young Casabianca, 
and placed in the mortuary to await inquest. Already the sudden storm is passing, and its fierceness is abating. The crowds are scattering homeward, and the sky is beginning to redden over the Yorkshire wolds. I shall send, in time for your next issue, further details of the derelict ship which found her way so miraculously into the harbour in the storm. Whitby, 9 August The sequel to the strange arrival of the derelict in the storm last night is almost more startling than the thing itself. It turns out that the schooner is a Russian from Varna and is called the Demeter. She is almost entirely in ballast of silver sand with only a small amount of cargo, a number of great wooden boxes filled with mould. This cargo was consigned to a Whitby solicitor, Mr. S. F. Billington, of Seven, the Crescent, who, this morning, went abroad and formally took possession of the goods consigned to him. The Russian consul, too, acting for the charter party, took formal possession of the ship and paid all harbour dues, etc. Nothing is talked about here, today, except the strange coincidence. The officials of the Board of Trade have been most exacting in seeing that every compliance has been made with the existing regulations. As the matter is to be a nine-day wonder, they are evidently determined that there shall be no cause of after-complaint. A good deal of interest was abroad concerning the dog which landed when the ship struck, and more than a few of the members of the SPCA, which is very strong in Whitbury, have tried to befriend the animal. To the general disappointment, however, it was not to be found. It seems to have disappeared entirely from the town. It may be that it was frightened, and made its way onto the moors, where it's still hiding in terror. There are some who look with dread on such a possibility, lest later on it should in itself become a danger, for it is evidently a fierce brute. Early this morning, a large dog, a half-bred mastiff belonging to a coal merchant close to Tate Hill Pier, was found dead in the roadway opposite of Master's Yard. It had been fighting, and manifestly had a savage opponent, for its throat was torn away and its belly was slit open as if with a savage claw. Later. By the kindness of the Broad Trade Inspector, I have been permitted to look over the logbook of the Demeter, which was in order up to within three days, but contained nothing of special interest except as to the facts of missing men. The greater interest, however, is with regard to the paper found in the bottle, which was today produced at the inquest and a more strange narrative than the two between them unfolded has not been my lot to come across. As there is no motive for concealment, I am permitted to use them, and accordingly send you a rescript, simply omitting technical details of seamanship and supercargo. It almost seems as though the captain had been seized with some kind of mania before he had got well into the blue water, and that this had developed persistently throughout the voyage. Of course, my statement must be taken cum grano, since I am writing from the dictation of a clerk with the Russian consul, who kindly translated for me, time being short. Log of the Demeter Varna to Whitby Written 18 July Things so strange happening that I shall keep accurate note henceforth till we land. On 6 July, we finished taking cargo, silver sand and boxes of earth. At noon, set sail. East wind, fresh. Crew, five hands. Two mates, cook, and myself. In brackets, captain. On 11th July, at dawn, entered Bosphorus. 
boarded by Turkish customs officers. Black sheesh. All correct. Underway at 4pm. On 12th of July, through Dardanelles, more customs officers and flagboat of guarding squadron. Black sheesh again. Work of officers, thorough, but quick. Want us off soon. A dark, passed into archipelago. On 13th of July, passed Cape Matapan. Crew, dissatisfied about something. Seemed scared, but would not speak out. On 14 July, was somewhat anxious about the crew. Men, all steady fellows, who sailed with me before. Mates could not make out what was wrong. Then he told him that there was something aboard, and crossed themselves. Mate lost temper with one of them that day, and struck him. Expected fierce quarrel, but all was quiet. On 16th of July, Mate reported in the morning that one of the crew, Petrovsky, was missing. Could not account for it. Took larboard watch eight bells last night. Was relieved by Abramov. Did not go to bunk. More men downcast than ever. All said they expected something of the kind, but would not say more than then there was something aboard. Mate, getting very impatient with them, feared some trouble ahead. On 17th of July, yesterday, one of the men, old Garin, came into my cabin and, in an awestruck way, confided to me that he thought there was a strange man aboard the ship. He said that, in his watch, he'd been sheltering behind the deckhouse as there was a rainstorm, when he saw a tall, thin man who was not like any of the crew come up the companionway and go along the deck, forward, and disappear. He followed, cautiously, but when he got to the bows, found no one, and the hatchways were all closed. He was in a panic of superstitious fear, and, I am afraid, the panic may spread. To allay it, I shall today search the entire ship carefully, from stem to stern. Later in the day, I got together the whole crew and told them, as they evidently thought there was someone on the ship, we should search from stem to stem. First mate, angry said it was folly, and to yield to such foolish ideas would demoralise the men. Said he would engage to keep them out of trouble with a handspike. I let him take the helm, while the rest began thorough search, all keeping abreast with lanterns. We left no corner unsearched. As there were only big wooden boxes, there were no odd corners where a man could hide. Men, much relieved when search over, and went back to work cheerfully. First mate scowled, but said nothing. 22nd July. Rough weather last three days, and all hands busy with sails. No time to be frightened. Men seem to have forgotten their dread. Mates cheerful again, and on good terms. Praised men for work in bad weather. Past Gibraltar and out through straits. All well. 24th July. There seems to be some doom over this ship. Already a hand short and entering into the Bay of Biscay with wild weather ahead, and yet, last night, another man lost. Disappeared. Like the first, he came off his watch, and was not seen again. Men, all in a panic, sent a round robin, asking to have double watch, as they fear to be alone. Mate, violent. Fear there will be some trouble, as either he or the men will do some violence. 28th July Four days in hell, knocking about in a sort of maelstrom, and the wind a tempest. No sleep for anyone. Men all worn out. Hardly know how to set a watch, since no one fit to go on. Second mate volunteered to steer and watch, and let the men snatch a few hours of sleep, 
Wind abating, seas still terrific, but feel them less, as ship is steadier. 29th July. Another tragedy. Had single watch tonight, as crew too tired. When morning watch came on, deck could find no one except steerman. Raised outcry, and all came on deck. Thorough search, but no one found. We are now without second mate, and crew in a panic. Mate and I agreed to go armed henceforth, and wait for any sign of cause. 30th July. Last night. Rejoiced, we are nearing England. Weather fine, all sails set. Retired, worn out, slept soundly. Awaked by mate telling me that both men of watch and steermen missing. Only self and mate, two hands left to work ship. 1st of August. Two days of fog, and not a sail sighted. Had hoped, when, in the English Channel, to be able to signal for help, or get in somewhere. Not having power to work sails, have to run before wind. Dare not lower, as could not raise them again. We seem to be drifting to some terrible doom. Mate, now more demoralised than either of them. His stronger nature seemed to have worked inwardly against himself. Men are beyond fear working solidly and patiently with their minds made up to the worst. They are Russian, he Romanian. 2nd of August, midnight. Woke up from a few minutes sleep, hearing a cry, seemingly outside my port. Could see nothing in fog. Rushed on deck and ran against mate. Tells me heard cry and ran, but no sign of man on watch. One more gone. Lord, help us. Mate says we must be past the Strait of Dover, as in a moment of fog lifting, he saw the North Foreland just as he heard the man cry out. If so, we are now off in the North Sea, and only God can guide us in this fog, which seems to move with us. And God seems to have deserted us. 3rd August At midnight, I went to relieve the man at the wheel, but when I got to it, I found no one there. The wind was steady, and as we ran before it, there was no yawing. I dared not leave it, so I shouted for the mate. After a few seconds, he rushed up on deck in his flannels. He looked wild-eyed and haggard, and I greatly fear his reason has given way. He came close to me and whispered hoarsely, with his mouth to my ear, as though fearing the very air might hear. It is here. I know it now. On the watch last night, I saw it. Like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the bowels and looking out. I crept behind it and gave it my knife, but the knife went through it, empty as the air. And as he spoke, he took his knife and drove it savagely into space. Then he went on. But it is here and I will find it. It is in the hold, perhaps, in one of those boxes. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. You work the helm. And, with a warning look, and his finger on his lips, he went below. There was springing up a choppy wind, and I could not leave the helm. I saw him come out on deck again with a tool chest and a lantern, and go down into the forward hatchway. He is mad, stark, raving mad, and it is no use my trying to stop him. 
He cannot hurt those big boxes. They're in voiceless clay, and to pull them out is as harmless a thing as he can do. So, here I stay, and mind the helm, and write these notes. I can only trust in God, and wait for the fog clears. Then, if I can't steer to any harbour with the wind that is, I shall cut down sails, and lie by, and signal for help. It is nearly all over now. Just as I was beginning to hope that the mate would come out calmer, for I heard him knocking away at something in the hold, and work is good for him, there came up the hatchway a sudden, startled scream which made my blood run cold. And, up on the deck, he came as if shot from a gun. A raging madman, with his eyes rolling and his face convulsed with fear. Save me! Save me! he cried, and then looked round on the blanket of fog. His horror turned to despair, and, in a steady voice, he said, You had better come too, Captain, before it is too late. He is there. I know the secret now. The seas will save me from him, and that is all that is left. Before I could say a word, or move forward to seize him, he sprang on the bulwark and deliberately threw himself into the sea. I suppose I know the secrets too, now. It was this madman who had got rid of the men, one by one, and now he has followed them himself. God help me. How am I to account for all these horrors when I get to port? When I get to port? Will that ever be? 4th August Still fog, which the sunshine cannot pierce. I know there is sunrise, because I am a sailor. Why else I know not. I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm. So here, all night, I stayed. And, in the dimness of night, I saw it. Him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It is better to die like a man. To die like a sailor... In the blue water, no man can object. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. But I shall baffle this fiend or monster. I shall tie my hands to the wheel, and when my strength begins to fail, and along with them, I shall tie that which he, it, dare not touch. And then, come good wind or foul, I shall save my soul and my honour as a captain. I am growing weaker, and the night is coming on. If he can look me in the face again, I may not have time to act. If we are wrecked, mayhap this bottle be found, and those who find it may understand. If not, well, then all men shall know that I have been true to my trust. God, and the Blessed Virgin, and the saints help a poor, ignorant soul trying to do his duty. Of course, the verdict was an open one. There was no evidence to adduce, and whether or not the man himself committed the murders, there was now none to say. The folk hold almost universally here that the captain is simply a hero, and that he is to be given a public funeral. Already it is arranged that his body be taken with a train of boats up the Esk for a piece, and then brought back to Tate Hill Pier and up the Abbey Steps, for he is to be buried in the churchyard on the cliff. The owners of more than a hundred boats have already given their names as wishing to follow him to the grave. 
No trace has ever been found of the great dog, at which there is much mourning. For, with public opinion in its present state, he would, I believe, be adopted by the town. Tomorrow we will see the funeral, and so will end this one more mystery of the sea. Mina Murray's Journal 8th August Lucy was very restless all night, and I, too, could not sleep. The storm was fearful, and, as it boomed loudly among the chimney-pots, it made me shudder. When a sharp puff came, it seemed to be like the distant gun. Strangely enough, Lucy did not wake, but she got up twice and dressed herself. Fortunately, each time I awoke in time, and managed to undress her without waking her, and got her back to bed. It is a very strange thing, this sleepwalking, for, as soon as her will is thwarted by any physical way, her intention, if there be any, disappears, and she yields herself almost exactly to the routine of her life. Early in the morning, we both got up and went down to the harbour to see if anything had happened in the night. There were very few people about, and, though the sun was bright and the air clean and fresh, the big, grim-looking waves, that seemed dark themselves because the foam that topped them was like snow, forced themselves in through the narrow mouth of the harbour, like a bullying man going through a crowd. Somehow, I felt glad that Jonathan was not on the sea last night, but on land. But, uh, is he on land or sea? Where is he? And how? I'm getting fearfully anxious about him. If only I knew what to do, and could do anything. 10th of August. The funeral of the poor sea captain today was most touching. Every boat in the harbour seemed to be there, and the coffin was carried by captains all the way from Tate Hill Pier up to the churchyard. Lucy came with me and we went to our old seats whilst the cortege of boats went up the river to the viaduct and came down again. We had a lovely view, and saw the procession nearly all the way. The poor fellow was laid to rest quite near our seat, so that we stood on it when the time came and saw everything. Poor Lucy seemed much upset. She was restless and uneasy all the time, and I cannot but think that her dreaming at night is telling on her. She is quite odd in one thing. She will not admit to me that there is any cause for restlessness. Or, if there be, she does not understand it herself. There is an additional cause, in that poor old Mr. Swales was found dead this morning on our seat, his neck being broken. He had evidently, as the doctor said, fallen back in the seat in some sort of fright, for there was a look of fear and horror on his face that the men said, made them shudder. Poor, dear old man. Perhaps he had seen death with his dying eyes. Lucy is so sweet and sensitive that she feels influences more acutely than other people do. Just now, she was quite upset by a thing which I did not much heed, though I am myself very fond of animals. One of the men who come up here often to look for the boats was followed by his dog. The dog is always with him. They're both quiet persons, and I never saw the man angry, nor had the dog bark. During the service, the dog would not come to its master, who was on the seat with us, but kept a few yards off 
barking and howling. Its master spoke gently to it, and then harshly, and then angrily, but it would neither come nor cease to make its noise. It was in a sort of fury, with its eyes savage, and all its hairs bristling out like a cat's tail when puss is on the warpath. Finally, the man too got angry, and jumped down and kicked the dog, then took it by the scruff of the neck, and half dragged and half threw it on the tombstone on which the seat is fixed. The moment it touched the stone, the poor thing became quiet and fell into a tremble. It did not try to get away, but crouched down, quivering and cowering, and was in such a pitiful state of terror that I tried, though without effect, to comfort it. Lucy was full of pity too, but she did not attempt to touch the dog, but looked at it in an agonized sort of way. I greatly fear that she is too supersensitive a nature to go through the world without trouble. She'll be dreaming of this tonight, I'm sure. The whole agglomeration of things, the ship steered into port by a dead man, his attitude tied to the wheel with a crucifix and beads, the touching funeral, the dog, now furious and in terror, will all afford material for her dreams. I think it will be best for her to go to bed tired out physically, so I shall take her on a long walk by the cliffs to Robin Hood's Bay and back. She not up to have much inclination for sleepwalking then. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It really means a lot and it helps me get this in front of the most amount of people possible, which would be fantastic. I love being able to share these books with you. It really, really brings a smile to my face. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.